0: On this edition of The Business, what good leaders don't notice. I'm Brian Kenney, Chief Marketing Communications Officer at Harvard Business School. Max Bazerman knows leaders. He's co-director for public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he teaches business administration here at HBS. Even with his own leadership credibility, Max Bazerman is dogged by something. The things he and other people in positions of power fail to see or hear or act on. So he wrote a book about basically paying attention. It's called The Power of Noticing, What the Best Leaders See. And here's one takeaway. That coworker who gripes all the time and just seems to stir up trouble, you might want to hear them out. I think anybody who basically
1: says the way we've been running things for the last 25 years is problematic comes across as a troublemaker. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they're simply troublemakers, and sometimes they have a really good point that we've been missing for an awfully long period of time
0: fact is, the consequences of not listening or acting on what's going on day to day can be dire. Just think of the long-standing problems at two very different institutions in the past decade, the scandal involving management at Penn State football and another involving priests and the Catholic Church.
1: Both involved child abuse, both involved lots of people who had some information that they didn't follow up on, they didn't act on, lots of people who somehow believed that the problem would solve itself in some mythical way that was shockingly unrealistic. Um, What I find sort of fascinating about both is that the Catholic Church and Penn State football are both institutions where people feel an enormous amount of loyalty. Mm -hmm. And we often think of loyalty as a good thing, and there are many good things about loyalty, but I think loyalty has a dark side, and that is that when we're so loyal to an institution— and there's an, a, a serious ethical problem within that organization, it may be that we're blinded from noticing that ethical challenge. And undoubtedly, in the Penn State story, in the Catholic Church story, there were people who just noticed clearly terrible information, and without a doubt, they should have done something. And, and I, I don't think noticing is a story. It, it was really the lacking the moral cor- courage to act. But I think that there are dozens of other people, maybe hundreds of other people, who had significant hints and should have felt a more significant obligation to do something about it. But with loyalty and with ambiguity and with being overwhelmed and getting different signals from different sources, it's easy to end up not acting in a situation where if you read about that story as a as a description on paper, and you're asked, should the person act, your answer would be yes. Mm -hmm. But in the midst of all that ambiguity, busyness, and confusion, so often we don't. And I think that most of us would like to think of ourselves as people who would act in those situations. And the question is, how do we go about changing our mentality so that we basically decide in advance that the kind of person I want to be is a person who does notice, who does follow up on this information, and when appropriate acts.
0: If you look at organizational culture that seems to have blind spots, mm-hmm. I think about GM, which has been in the headlines quite a bit because of safety issues. I think about Toyota a few years ago faced a similar situation. How do you turn the tide on a, on a culture like that if you're leading a big organization?
1: It's certainly very, very difficult, but, but I think that you start at the top, and you create an environment where the top leaders are more likely to notice. You put noticing on the agenda. um, When something seems off and you don't know quite what it is, um, you follow through to figure out what what it is rather than um, saying I'm I'm too busy to focus on it. You think about why it is that people might not notice. What are the incentives? Um, What are the structures that we're creating that are keeping people from speaking up when something is sort of out of whack? Um, one of my clients, uh, a Fortune 25 corporation, has an internal video that they don't release externally, but it's an internal video of four senior vice presidents who all tell their 15-minute story of the time when their boss was doing something wrong, so they went above their boss's head. Mm. And they're now senior vice presidents. Wow. And this corporation celebrates their behavior rather than rather than
0: trying to send signals
1: that you should never go above your
0: boss's head. But it doesn't always work that way. So if we think about some of the examples you, you give in the book, tell me where the blind spots were, for, for example, with Enron. Sure. Um, one of the most important events
1: that hit the financial world soon after um, the 9-11 disaster um, hit the country um, was the collapse of Enron. And Enron was a firm that was involved... In, in very faulty accounting. It was fraudulent. Um, they were hiding losses in a variety of ways, and they were using a variety of different accounts um, to truly bamboozle the investment community. And um, their auditor was Arthur Anderson. Mm-hmm. And um, as we discussed before, the, the job of an auditing firm is to independently and objectively a- a- assess the financial condition of the firm according to the books that the that the corporation presents um in this particular case um what enron was doing from a financial standpoint was truly egregious and should have been noticed by smart professionals um but but arthur anderson was earning 25 million dollars in auditing fees and 27 million dollars in consulting fees mm-hmm. and um at least partially as a result of their incentives to get rehired and to continue selling their consulting services, they didn't seem to notice information that was was truly egregious. Um, And the question is, how could this possibly occur? And when we're motivated to not notice,
0: our ability to not notice far exceeds what our expectations um, are. How would you advise somebody who has a similar kind of epiphany, and maybe it's not about something as as big as as what you faced, but even if it's a small thing, um, should we go back and sort of rectify those things?
1: I think that we want to lead a life that we're proud of. So I think that in many cases, we want to do our best to rectify. Um, at the same time, there are lots of people who are in situations where being a whistleblower has real risks, and and I don't mean to ignore those risks. I don't mean to downplay downplay those risks. And I'm very sympathetic to people who don't have job security, who um, don't sufficiently act mm-hmm. in ways that we can easily read read a description of and say they should. But it's quite easy to understand how they don't, um, given um, job insecurity, given a variety of uncertainty, given differences in how organizations um respond to whistleblowers. And, and, and for me, that's simply one more call to leadership to create an organization that everybody can be proud of, that would reward whistleblowers rather than punishing them.
0: Another example that you point to, this happened back in 1986. It's a moment that I remember vividly watching it as a college student, uh, was the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger disaster that happened in 1986. Where was, the, where was the blindness there?
1: It was an amazing episode, um, and uh, many of us can remember when we first found out that the shuttle had exploded. Um, so the evening before the Challenger disaster, two engineers from Morton-Thiokol suggested that there was a problem of temperature being related to O-ring failure. And the engineers, while their intuition was right, their presentation was significantly lacking. They presented the seven past shuttle missions, where there had been O-ring problems.
0: And the O-rings, uh, th- those are th- that's what connects the different pieces of the ship together.
1: That's right, yeah. So, and, and it needs to seal in order for it to be secure. And sealing is a problem. Um, it turned out the sealing is a problem at cold temperatures. But the amazing part is the evening before the launch, when the engineers suggested that there was a problem, they talked about the seven past launches where there were problems. And and then they argued with um, a guy named Larry Malloy at NASA who wanted to launch, arguing that he didn't see a pattern, and the Morton Thiokol engineers said they did see a pattern. And the amazing part is that there are many smart people in that discussion who had technical training. And if you asked a smart engineer if you wanted to know whether temperature was related to O-ring failure, should you look at the successes, the failures, or both? The fact that the answer is both is extraordinarily obvious, yet the discussion focused only on the past failures, and no one asked the question whether the successes tended to be at higher temperatures. Mm-hmm. And if, had, if anybody had noticed that they were using the wrong information, then it would have been easy to get the other 17 data points, and it's quite likely that we would have never have launched the challenger on that day. And, and what we see in that meeting is something that I, see, I think we see in lots of meetings where there's somebody. it used to be the person with the chalk and now it's the person with the PowerPoint presentation who guides what information we pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And she has a remarkable ability to influence what information is and isn't considered. And so many of us fail to step back and ask the question, what information would we actually need to address the question mm-hmm. rather than what information do we happen to have in the room?
0: And in this case, uh, was there any motivation not to launch? Should anybody have been thinking about that? So I think Morton Thiokol
1: was concerned over true, true safety issues. Um, Back in 1986, in fact, there were enormous political pressures to have a successful launch. Um, Reauthorization for NASA was coming up, and NASA dramatically wanted a success, and they wanted a success quickly quickly not two months later. So Mm -hmm. there was political pressure in favor of launching. The real pressure to not launch had to do with the fact that Morton Thiokol had the right intuition but the wrong presentation.
0: And certainly nobody nobody set out with the intention of doing harm to anybody. Uh, This was not a situation where they wanted anything bad to happen, but they were blinded by the fact that they wanted to get this thing out. The pressure was there to do it.
1: I think that you have it exactly right. So uh, nobody wants to launch an unsafe shuttle. On the other hand, they also wanted a success quickly. And to the extent that you're focusing on the success quickly, it's quite possible that that blinds you to the safety risks that actually exist. Um, If we think about that discussion, what's amazing is that uh, Frank Malloy from NASA changes the conversation to the idea that we continue with plans to launch unless you can give me evidence that it's not safe. Mm -hmm. And we see that the status quo ends up being critically important, when most of us would argue we shouldn't launch the the shuttle until we're confident that it is safe, rather than putting the burden on the engineers to prove that it isn't.
0: So you've experienced failure to notice uh, in a very personal way, and you write about that in the book, too, around the testimony that you provided in the case against big tobacco. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. I was an expert witness in 2005 in a landmark RICO case that the U.S. Department of Justice had filed against, essentially, the tobacco industry. And my, my direct testimony had been submitted in writing in mid-April. And um, on April 30th, I showed up in Washington, D.C. to work with the Department of Justice attorney that I had been working with to prepare for my testimony in court, my cross-examination in court on May 4th. And um, after having worked on this for uh, about seven weeks and after having basically spent about 166 hours Mm -hmm. of time, I showed up in Washington, and the attorney that I was working with sat down, and he looked at me in a very formal way. This is
0: the attorney for the federal government.
1: The attorney for the federal government for the Department of Justice, um, who I'd been working with closely for six, seven weeks. And um, he looked very serious, and he said to me in a very formal way, Professor Bazerman. And that, my ears startled at that because by that time he was used to calling me Max. He said, Professor Bazerman, the Department of Justice requests that you amend your testimony To note that it would not be relevant if any of the following four conditions existed Mm -hmm. and i'm not a lawyer but he then read to me four conditions in legalese that i didn't come close to understanding and he was asking me to amend my testimony to note that it would not be relevant if any of these four conditions existed
0: basically making your testimony irrelevant to a potentially irrelevant
1: yeah and i said to him so why would i agree to that when you know that I didn't understand what you just said. Mm -hmm. And he said, because if you don't amend your testimony in the way I just specified, there's a good chance that my superiors will eliminate you from the trial before you testify on Wednesday, May 4th. -hmm. So I said, no, I don't amend my testimony. And he said, good, let's prepare in case you're still in the case. And I remember sort of thinking, this is truly bizarre, And there's something wrong here. But it was also the busiest work period of my life. Mm -hmm. I was getting ready to to testify a few days later. There were a number of other legal issues that I needed to deal with in the case. Uh, My mother was terminally ill. My sister was fighting breast cancer. And life was just complicated. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm giving you my excuses if you can't tell. And um, despite this sort of bizarre episode, we moved forward. I did testify. And things move forward. But then on June 17th, I woke up at 5 a.m. in London. I was working with a corporate client, Mm -hmm. opened up my PC, and checked the New York Times. And on the front page of the New York Times was a story about Matthew Myers, the president of Tobacco-Free Kids. Mm -hmm. And the story was about how he had just come forward with evidence that Robert McCollum of the Department of Justice, the number two official at the Department of Justice, was involved in tampering with his testimony. Mm. And as I read what Matthew Myers had experienced, it was close to a repeat of what I had experienced on April 30th. And I just had this overwhelming thought. Boy, did I blow it. Mm -hmm. Not sure what I was supposed to do on April 30th, but nothing was clearly not the right answer to this question. Right. And I think that illustrates the fact that things that we need to notice are often a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. They often don't occur at the most convenient time. Life is often busy. You have other concerns. You don't even quite know what would you do with this information. But despite all these excuses I can provide to you, I still think I made a fundamental mistake by doing nothing in response to the episodes of April 30th. Eventually I got to the right answer. On June 17th, uh, I quickly called my spouse who knew more about Washington than I did. And by the end of the day was in conversations with the Government Accountability Project, an organization that represents whistleblowers. And I spoke to the Washington Post
0: about the story and they soon covered the story as well. So you tell this story and you talk about the the sort of epiphany that you had when you opened up your computer that morning and looked at the headline, but I'm hearing you also talk about the fact that you didn't do what they asked you to do. You stuck to your guns. You went with the testimony that you originally had. So you did do the right thing. What what was it, that that moment that occurred to you where you felt like you had failed to notice?
1: What what strikes me about that story is that— By reading the account about Matt Myers on the morning of June 17th, being groggy and jet-lagged at 5 a.m., it was obvious that I needed to do something.
0: What was obvious about it?
1: That the Department of Justice was acting in a way that I found egregious at best and illegal at worst. Mm -hmm. And I had information about this, and I did nothing about it. And I'm, I'm a tenured professor at Harvard. My salary secure. I'm, I'm a pretty hard person to harm. So why wouldn't I speak up? And, and going back to April 30th, why didn't I speak
0: up? Well, that brings up another question that I had, which is uh, if I've got blind spots, if I'm not a good noticer, can I really recognize that in myself or do I need somebody else to point that out to me and if so, like, who's best positioned to do that? Do I? I need to surround myself, I guess, with people who aren't going to just tell me what I want to hear. And we hear that a lot. But you point to examples in the book where yeah. it clearly seemed like there were patterns of behavior where people didn't want to tell the emperor that he had no clothes. Right. So I think that
1: um, a leader's willingness to see and hear the even bad news is absolutely critical. So, um, and I would encourage all leaders to think about the most difficult of their senior executives, the one who's always bringing up the annoying questions yeah. in meetings. and We and, all have those. <laughs> and, 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 and it could be that they're just really an annoying person, but it could be <laughs> that they're serving a valuable function and that they're forcing us to think about things that are critically important. And that if we don't think about them now, we're going to be thinking about them down the road when after the bad event has occurred. So how do we harness the power of people around us to be critical? How do we reward that function? And how do we put up with the fact that none of us kind of like the person who's saying maybe the project won't work. Mm. Um, but maybe it, it won't. But exactly. And, 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 and how do we go about grabbing the insight
0: and thinking it through rather than trying to shut it down? So um, I'm going to assume I've already failed to notice a bunch of things uh, as this day began. How can I get better at noticing?
1: By the fact that you ask that question, you're ahead of lots of leaders. So a lot of leaders just don't have it on their agenda to become better noticers. So I think having a goal to notice is an excellent first step. I think periodically asking those around you, what are the key threats and challenges facing this organization, will lead you to hear about lots of information. That people are sort of thinking about but aren't crystallizing and that that's the nature of noticing we we do have hints we're just not acting on them Um, i think that uh, leaders are special because they affect not only their own decisions but those around them so what kind of culture and norms are you creating in your organization that will affect the propensity of other people to provide you with critical information that you should be noticing And what incentives exist in your organization? And how do employees understand those incentives? So it'd be great to go talk to individuals five levels lower than you in the organization and find out what they would do if they found out that their boss was doing something inappropriate. And if the answer isn't what you would want it to be, how would you create an organization that was functioning more effectively?
0: Great advice from Professor Max Bazerman. Max, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Max Bazerman's book is entitled The Power of Noticing, What the Best Leaders See. You can find a link on our webpage at hps.edu slash thebusiness. Take a few minutes to tell us what you notice about our podcasts, what you'd like to hear about, and who you'd like to hear from. Post your comments at hashtag thebusiness. And subscribe to The Business on iTunes U or follow us on Harvard SoundCloud. Another edition of The Business comes your way in two weeks. Thanks for listening.